Hi, I'm Joel. This is the Creativity Pulse podcast, a podcast where we dive into the cool waters of creativity and cruise around some creative thinking, evolution of ideas, and innovation that currently exists in a variety of industries and businesses, big and small. I chat with my guests about their life and business and their approach to creativity. The guests share some of their methods and techniques with us so we can try and understand how some of the more creative people around us go about being, well, exactly that, more creative. For those of you just joining us, let me explain how things work. There's a weekly episode with a guest lasting between 15 and 20 minutes. There's then a series of three episodes. They're really interesting people and my idea, initial idea anyway, of two episodes meant the episodes were getting to be a marathon of listening. There is also a takeaway with the third guest episode. This summarizes the whole conversation with some creative ideas linked in. It includes some insights to help you exercise, flex and build your creative mental muscle. You'll also find some information on the website that helps you do this. Check out the creative ideas generators, for instance. Here we are back on the Creativity Pulse. I'm with another exciting guest. Who are you? Where do you come from? What do you do? Hey, I am Dr. Michael Steiner. I am located in Central Florida. Uh, I do lots of different stuff. Um, uh, you can find me on on Twitter or or TikTok at uh, Dr. Michael Steiner, the Dr. Michael Steiner. And um, I work. I've got kind of two things. So I am the founder of Steiner Solutions, which is a, uh, a boutique coaching and consulting firm focus on, focusing on helping leaders and organizations unlock their next big idea. And uh, that's my that's my Batman role, right? That's what I do at night protecting the streets of the internet on uh, doing that kind of thing. And then my daytime, my Bruce Wayne role is uh, I am the vice president for innovation at Southeastern University, which is a uh, private liberal arts university located. Uh, traditional campus is located in central Florida, but we have 200 campuses globally, um, everywhere from Uganda to um, Sweden to all 39 uh, states. And, uh, and we're working on one in Singapore right now. So all over the place. Liberal arts, I've always sort of struggled to find what that is, is as if there are unliberal arts. Oh, so yeah. what are liberal arts? Well, technically, I mean, it's in the United States, it's a designation. It's, a, it's actually more, it's more code designation than it is actually like branding moniker. It's, it's just a way for them to differentiate. Um, and private liberal arts is to differentiate from state-funded university to differentiate from community college to differentiate from trade vocational school. So in the United States, we have all of those, you know, different, different forms of higher education and higher ed is the, the bucket that all that falls into. So a private liberal arts is, is the designation for a university that has multiple areas of studies that goes at least through a full, what we call four year bachelor's degree. Um, so that's your, your four year kind of undergrad. So any, anything that has like four or five different fields of disciplines, um, kind of goes from there. And then you have college versus university. And that gets a whole nother, another layer of distinction. We Americans love slicing the pie a hundred, a hundred million different ways. Cause you can only bill somebody if their pie is sliced into a specific way. So that's I, how that works. 
I know we've chatted before. I grew up in Houston, Texas and New York State up near Poughkeepsie. And um, I know what you mean about Americans liking to divide everything up. I remember watching baseball in my teens and thinking I'm being bombarded by statistics. Every time Mm -hmm. some chap sort of stood at the plate, it was he's got a 3.69 RBI and a 4.76 this. I was like, my gosh, you need to be a statistician in order to understand the baseball game. Oh, yeah. My dad was like, no, just watch the guy hit the ball. You know, watch watch when the pitcher hits him. It was like, wow, that's kind of exciting. You know, 50 men all out of the dugouts all on top of each other. It's like, yeah, I like America. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Oh yeah, any 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 excuse to throw a few blows, especially in Texas. That's how they do it out there. So yeah, as long as they keep the gun on the uh, the rack of the pickup truck. Fun thing about Texas, yeah, a lot of people don't know this. So Texas still has a um, gosh, what's it called? It's a, it's called uh, a mutual combat law. So in Texas, if you and a guy want to have at it. Um, and like, and like go fist fight. You can't shoot each other or anything like that. There's no dueling laws, but this, this law is kind of like the last holdover of the dueling laws. So you like two guys can go at it in mutual combat and a police officer will walk up and be like, do you both consent to this? And, and as long as both people say, yeah, he goes, all right, boys, keep it out of the street. And as long as you're not like in the middle of the street or anything like that, they won't stop you. Like, and you can't, um, you can't push for, uh, assault and battery on the other person. You, they can't, they could all, as long as it's mutually agreed for, for mutual combat. So it's a, it's still a wild, wild state out there. It's fun. <laughs> fun indeed. I was saying, I, I think I know a few people from England who would love to move to Texas. I think they're probably on the internet at the moment going, how do I get to Texas? You know, that's insane. I guess there's a, there's a certain sensible sort of side to that. I know in our sort of past conversations, we've spoken about the American ideal and sort of going back to the 50s and 60s and, mm-hmm. you know, even further back to sort of the founding fathers. And I know you've uh, you've got some interesting stuff to sort of talk about on that. Yeah. Do you think America still has that sort of ideal where, you know, you can sort of throw a few punches and as long as the cop says it's okay, you can have at it, so to speak? I, I think Americans function best when that is an option for us. Um, I think part of a lot of the, I think a lot of, a a lot of the American identity that we're problem that we're dealing with right now is because there's a group of people that says that that's not a quote unquote civilized way to, to go at it, um, to, to take care of your problems, which I understand, right? Okay. So, you know, like it, violence is should not be your first action you know and and i love i love the uh, the phrase from isaac asimov if you're if you're a sci-fi reader um he he's uh, in the foundation series is violence is always the last refuge of the incompetent um so love that phrase right love love that phrase and um so it's i'm not saying that that should be like our first option um but but um the american psyche identity was built on people bickering like I, you know, you go all the way back to the founding fathers. They they did not agree with each other. Like the founding fathers created the first two political parties that we understand as today. And and the beauty of the American system is that it can bend to the fight. 
Um, and so what, what that's where to me, the, the most dangerous thing for the American system is a unified, um, Senate, Congress and, and, um, and, and presidency. So on both sides, right? So when we had it under Trump in 2016, and then when we had it under Biden again in 2020, um, that is the most dangerous form of our of our government because our government wasn't built to have a bunch of people easily agree on everything and easily pass stuff across the board. It was built to cope with people vehemently disagreeing with each other. And the, and the idea is that it's that dialectic theory, right, that, go, that the Enlightenment was really kind of obsessed with was that from the collision, you get, you know, growth and you get movement. And if you don't have the collision, then you don't have movement. Now, luckily, a lot of the, you know, majority splits and, and everything and, and all that kind of stuff was more, more, it was more numerical than it was real, right? And we've already found that, that both parties have, have more division, again, we like to divide ourselves in in America. It's it's kind of it's kind of what we do, um, as we were talking about on the front side of it. So it's so it, it ended up not being as harmful as it could have been. But um, I mean, it, it could have been terrible on both sides, right? I mean, you know, ir- irreparable. And and one side probably does think it's pretty terrible, just in the nature of the Supreme Court elections that that um, the Republicans were able to get through in quite a quite a short period of time, and so. You know that's a that's another thing. I don't know how much you want to how much you want to wax eloquent on American politics, but that's uh, that's that's where we're kind of at as a as a society, right? Is um, so me and my friends were talking about how from t- from you probably got from 1990 to about 2000 and really eight, but maybe more like ten is where it last was what we called the golden age of American comedy. Right, so this is where you have The Office. This is where you have Wedding Crashers. Um, you know, Will Ferrell is at his height with with uh, you know all the different stuff, and um, you know you have The Hangover, and it was just you go back and watch those movies, and so irreverent, even on the female side. Right, this is where we also had um, uh, uh, Bridesmaids, right, which which is kind of what was a big coming out movie that was at the tail end of it. You have this golden age of American comedy, right, where, where Everybody's making fun of everything. Nothing is nothing is sacred. Everything is making fun of you. Family Guy, you know, as a as a TV show. And now we're at this time where you can't do that. Where people can't have like we haven't had a good. Can you name a good comedy movie that's come out in the last ten years, last twelve years? I can't. I can't even name one that tried to be a comedy. I think if you try and do that nowadays, you just get shut down. Um, yeah, someone's standing there going. <gasps> you know, taking that big inward deep breath and you can just see the sort of hailstorm of mm-hmm. shutdown coming at you. You know, I, I think the, uh, right, right. Well, it's- yeah, I think the, uh, the creators of the office originally have sort of come out in England and said, look, you know, you just can't write this stuff anymore. You know, it's we're not having this great British sort of verbal combat and discourse. That sort of whole idea, I guess, of Voltaire's, I think it was of, you know, look, I'll sort of, you know, I'll defend you to the death so that you can say whatever that, you know, you have the right to say what you want to say. I might not agree with you, and I'm certainly going to tell you that I don't agree with you because it's my right to do that as well. Do you think America sort of suffered from that, you know, whether it's sort of politically, culturally, creatively, you know, you, you hear it a lot from people writing plays, musicians, mm-hmm. you know, 
you know, imagine the Sex Pistols or the Dead Kennedys coming out now in the States, you know. Right, right. Can't even, can't even think about it. No, they have to be one direction, right? <laughs> it's all has to be this, 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 uh, this unity on this side. And it's, a, you know, I think it all goes back to what we were talking about originally with, with the idea of Texans and combat is that like comedy is a form of conflict. And I think a lot of people don't get that, right? Like what makes comedy work, what makes it really work is it is a verbal attack on something, right? Some, it's some pushback that makes you go, oh, it's that, so it's a surprise that actually makes you, that it actually makes you laugh. And so in a society that says that we're going to eliminate all forms of conflict, there can be no conflict. We don't want conflict. Conflict is discomfort. You lose comedy, right? And if you lose comedy, that's, that's it for art, right? Art becomes ultimately meaningless. Um, cause you, cause you for sure can't have tragedy if you're not going to have comedy, right. You know, uh, on that part of it. Well, you know, I take that back. I take that back. Let me walk that back because horror movies have been on the rise. Right. So, so, uh, in a weird reversal, right. We've had some of the craziest. So in the, t- in the same time span that we haven't had good comedy, we've had a massive pick in like the purge, right. You have like all these crazy, you know, slashers, thrillers, zombie movies are at an all-time high. Game of Thrones with its killers and all that kind of stuff. Um, so I don't know. I just said that a lot. I'm verbally processing here with you, and I realize, wait a minute, maybe there's an inverse relationship between one, one and the other. The human psyche has to have its conflict at some level, and so. Do you think there's a? I mean, societies obviously go through these sort of sine waves, which mm-hmm. pretty much everything in life does, yeah. but. Do you think that the creative side of things sort of reflects, you know, the horror film side of things is trying to sort of maybe balance out that? Because I know you have watched The Purge and you sort of sit there, you know, with your sort of hands over your eyes. Um, Yeah, exactly. With that sort of look on your face of, you know, oh, please, no. Oh, no. Oh, gosh. Oh, yeah. (laughs) But do you think they're sort of trying to balance that lack of other side of it out? Yeah. I don't know if it's a sense of balance, but it's definitely a reflection of the mood of the producing culture, right? Like art, art is always the mirror of the culture at the time. Um, that that's held true for, you know, for, for forever. Um, and so the, you know, it's, it's definitely, you could definitely, maybe it's not a causation. I wouldn't call it a causation predictive relationship, but it's a correlated relationship where whatever is coming out on the art side is reflective a lot of how people feel on the other side, you know? And I think, um, I think you really see that well with the superhero obsession that we went through for 10 years. Um, and, and, and a constant obsession. I don't know if, if you kind of noticed it, they were always trying to push the superhero into some sort of moral quandary, right? So like the, the villain wasn't that bad of a villain, right? The hero wasn't that good of a hero. Um, and there was never a resolution to that, right? It was always, they were always operating, you know, you compare and contrast that to the, to the old Western, which is what people always compare superhero movies to is the old Western, the old Western good was good. Bad was bad. Right. There were the good guys and there were the bad guys. And you could always know who the difference was by the color of their hat. And right. And so so that's you just you went right off the bat. And so now you've got these superheroes where, you know, you've got Captain America now not trusting his government. Right. And so that's reflective of how 
how we as Americans think about ourselves, right? The heroes can't be too good at, you know, all of a sudden the heroes are because of their power becomes oppressive and they have to have limits placed on them. Um, you know, and, and, and all this different stuff, you've got, you've got this villain who's wiping everything out and they lose in the first, in the first little bit. And they have to literally go back and rearrange time in order to, to actually come out. And it's a sort of a pirate victory, that kind of thing. Um, I think that is, that is probably the reflection, you know, if somebody was some, 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 uh, art major somewhere, some art postdoc graduate needs to write that paper. If you're watching this right now and you're, and you're struggling for what to do your dissertation on, uh, the, the reflection of the Americans from, of the American society from 19, I mean, from 2010 to 2020 as reflected in the, in the Marvel saga, that would be a great PhD for somebody to write. So I'll read that. Two years time scan just saw and all of the other, uh, sort of sites that you can go to to yeah. find that yeah. I'm sure that you know, yeah. three competing people around the world have picked up on that yeah. cool do you think that the i mean i wrote cartoons down you mentioned the sort of westerns and i was yeah the white hat and the black hat that was just so obvious you used to have sort of tom and jerry where it was again very and there was the sort of the dog and everything was very clear cut yep um do you think you know, have we grown up in recognizing? I remember watching Seven with Brad Pitt and Morgan mm, Freeman, yeah, and and just sitting there going, "Oh God, please don't open the box! Please don't open!" Oh, he's opened the box. Yeah, there it is. Yep. And everybody knew what was in the box, mm-hmm. and it was just one of those films where you just thought, "Wow, that's how life is, though." Mm-hmm. You know, the bad guy won, right? The good guys got it. You know, got need. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, and you're just sort of thinking, well, do we, do we as a sort of societies nowadays want that sort of creative element of ours or the the real psyche in there, the creative psychological view that you know the bad guys don't often get caught, you know, bank robbers do get away with it, murderers do get away with it, you know, the bad guys do psychologically damage all of the you know the nice pretty people out there, right? Um, do you think there's something sort of reflective, you know, globally maybe in that? Because these films are watched by people all over the place. Right, right. Well, I think it's definitely reflective of how people think. And I think the problem is um, the, the problem I have with it. So here's here's what I'll say. Into this whole, you know, mud, right, of, of film, we get Top Gun Maverick last year, right? Highest grossing film in the last 10 years. And I haven't met a single person. Have you seen it? Did you see the film? No, I saw the first one and that was it, you know, with Ice, Ice Man and Oh yeah. You gotta you gotta watch it. It's almost like exactly the same in a lot of different ways. Like the jokes are still sazy, cheesy, but it's so funny because I talk to all my friends, like my generation and all that kind of stuff when we talk about it. Everybody's still favorite movie that they've watched in the last like half decade, five years. Like still still everybody's favorite. I, what was crazy about it? There was a good guy, there was a bad guy, right? And and they did really well in this time in that they didn't like personify the bad guy. It was more of like a bad challenge. It was like, but these were bad dudes. These were clearly bad dudes. Nobody questioned it, and it was a challenge that was um, more than anybody could defeat. Right? It was way bigger than anybody could defeat. And in typical Tom Cruise fashion, he does it right. You know, he teaches them how to do it and they all kind of go, you know, I don't want to give the whole movie, um, but you knew it going into it because like, that's how it was in there. And it was so 
refreshing and it was so wonderful. It's the first movie I've watched in 10 years where I left out of there wanting to be a better person. And so that's the thing is that art can either cause you to really be like, yeah, that's just the way the world is. Or it could be like, man, maybe I'm inspired to do something better. And, um, and I think that's, that's the option that as artists you have, right? Do you want to just reflect the world as it is in your art? Or do you want to reflect the world as it could be through your art and, and inspire challenge? And I don't think that there's a way that you should write what artists should or shouldn't do. But if you as an artist want to talk about your impact and increasing your impact, why be the echo chamber when you can be the thermostat and change the temperature of everything? What an excellent expression. Do you think that Americans have sort of adopted from the English that sort of, you know, that discourse and the wanting to be the thermostat and not necessarily the barometer of everything? You know, they want to turn the heat up. They want to turn the heat down. They want to take it left and take it right. Um, I think we as British people sort of look at the Americans now and go, I wish we were a little bit more like that. You know. Um, do you think that Americans are getting better at that sort of thing? Yeah. Yeah. I, um, man, I have a lot of thoughts to do going a hundred, a hundred different directions. I, so on, on the front side, front end of your question, we talked about the, the comparison and contrast between Americans and uh, American society and British society, both being, you know, global reserve currencies at one point, both being, you know, global powers at one point. Um, I think comparatively between the two, and this might shock a lot of people, comparatively between the two, Americans suck at governance. We just are we just are terrible at it. We've never we've never been good at governance. We we've specifically built a system that, when you look at it in its totality, is an anti-governance system. Like the whole thing is built to make sure that that nobody in some central place can be that good can tell can can tell you what to do in your individual place and we created this we the way we did it is just through massive red tape right like nobody nobody beats americans in red tape we've just we've created and manufactured and even even in this whole last you know 75 years of quote unquote american imperialism which was really an anti-imperialism because we never dictated how any country should do anything right we quote unquote influenced, right? You have the CIA doing kind of its stuff, but compare and contrast that with British imperialism, right? Where it was literally you, you are a British state, right? Like all these places were British. They were owned by, by England. Um, it's, it's like kittens, right? It's comparing a kitten to a lion. Um, the only thing we did that, that was the only thing that we did that we had the option was, was we had bigger, better guns patrolling the ocean. So that was the thing is we just told everybody, all right, guys, you guys are going to stop killing. You know, we told all the Euro- all the Europeans, all right, Europeans, stop it, stop shooting each other. You're you're done. You're 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 not going to shoot each other anymore. And the way we're going to make sure you don't shoot each other anymore is controlling your oil and controlling your wheat, so that you don't have to worry about that. And then you're going to help us choke out Russia, and that's a whole nother whole nother thing. Great book I just finished. Um, it's called The End of the World Is Just the Beginning by a guy called Peter Zion best review of the last 75 years and like where the next round of globalism. So that's all I'll say that book is the finet on everything comparing and contrasting the English and American systems. Um, but as far as Americans sorting out, um, I, you know, for us, what's happened over the last two cycles, two or three cycles of American 
identity, right, is American identity does best when we have a challenge to conquer. When we don't have a challenge to conquer, it's when we start looking at ourselves um, and, the, and, and overlooking at ourselves, right? And so um, the last civil war came, uh, the last civil war came in the midst of the fact that that Europe, Europe plunged into darkness in the Napoleonic Wars and was no longer a major trade competitor, right? The, the East India Brit, um, Trading Company, which was our main, American's main competitor, collapsed in and of itself. And so all of a sudden there's nothing nothing to to force us to not take a look at ourselves. And what do we do? We have a massive civil war. At the end of the Civil War, what becomes the next challenge is the frontier, the West. Right? We have to conquer the West. We're gonna we're gonna redivert all this negative energy. We sorted out this one system. We're gonna redirect. We conquer the West. Then we get through the West, and we have another problem. There's nothing to conquer anymore. And so this is where you have the industrial revolutions, um, all the way up to leading into the first first couple um, world wars. Right? And so the world wars are now. Now we have another baddie to kind of look at, you know, and then at the end of the, at the end of the world wars, there was the cold war. Cause we have got Russia and now it's the baddie. And so, um, there's a guy named, um, uh, Orson Scott card. He wrote a book called Ender's game that a lot of people may have heard of, but he wrote a bunch of other books in a series. Um, have you read the whole series? That's all we have time for this week. If you want to find out the answer to Michael's question, tune in in the next seven to 10 days when we bring out episode 23 with Dr. Michael Steiner. Thanks for joining us. Don't forget to have a look at the website. You'll find some stuff to help you develop your creative abilities. I'm Joel. Who are you? Where do you come from? And what do you do?